Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery. I'm your host, Chris West. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media, Goopla, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Subscribe and listen to us on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, all that good stuff. And go to our website and leave a story. We are desperate to hear from our audience. We want to know what's going on with everybody. We would love to hear from you. So go to the website, leave a story, say hi, say you like us, say you hate us, send us a haiku, whatever you want. Our guest today is Will Alfin from the Foundation for Recovery. Uh, super funny guy, super down to earth, very well spoken, and very intelligent. I mean, this guy used to be a rocket scientist. No joke. Worked on rockets that flew and blew things up. Will is also a carrot connoisseur and a huge Ska fan, apparently. Who doesn't love Ska? I'll never turn my back on Ska. Anyways, super fun interview. A lot of good information. My co-host today is Dr. Sarah Shonian. Enjoy. Welcome to the Recover Everything podcast. I am Dr. Sarah, and I'm here with the host, Chris Soundhound West. And today we have the lovely Will from Foundation for Recovery. Hi, Will. Hello. It's good to be here. Dr. Sarah. Hello. You can die. <laughs> Thanks, Soundhound. <laughs> it's never going to catch on. Oh, it's, it's trending yeah, already. It really is. I'm sorry. Hashtag Soundhound, mm. everyone. <laughs> It'll be his new Instagram handle as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, Whether he knows it or not. Mm -hmm. That's what makes me famous. Right. Not actually... my film school education or short films or helpful podcasts. Right. We Just actually... hashtag Soundhound. We've actually secretly been, yeah, we've been taking secret pictures of him for the last week, and he has his own Instagram now. <laughs> he doesn't even know about. It's like weird dog stuff <laughs> all over it. <laughs> Paw prints. Uh, mostly just you giving us dirty looks. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah. Right. So what do you do at the Foundation of Recovery, Will? I am uh, the director of programs at Foundation for Recovery. So that just means that I um, oversee the programs we have there, oversee our peer support program, um, our uh, all recovery meeting. Uh, I have a couple of off-site peers, two in Las Vegas, one in Reno, that I um, supervise as well. Tell us more, or the listeners, uh, more about peer recovery support. Peer recovery support is, uh, there's a certification um, through the state of Nevada. We are one of the training bodies at Foundation for Recovery. The other is uh, the University of Nevada at Reno. And that's uh, a 48-hour, 46, 48-hour training. And then there's uh, 500 hours of um, 
shadowing internship, just just volunteer hours uh, that go toward the certification through the state. But what it is, in essence, is um, non-clinical support uh, through lived experience. So the requirement uh, through the state is that the person be in recovery from uh, substance use disorder and or um, behavioral health issues, and they need to be um, substance-free for two continuous years mm-hmm. or incident-free uh, if it's a behavioral health background that they have um, in order to qualify for a certification. What, what is the two-year? Why, why, why two years? Um, it, the main reason is just uh, that they have some longevity in recovery. Uh, that they, uh, one of the things that we offer is, um, you know, we espouse the multiple pathways to recovery. So the longer they have in recovery, uh, the more likely they are, uh, to have more experience with different pathways. So, uh, and, and one is just, I mean, the main reason is it, it's just common sense. You need to have separation from active use or from, uh, you know, a behavioral health incident, you need to have that time in order to establish, establish yourself as a person and, and be, you know, it lends stability to the person themselves. Right. One of the most interesting things I find about you is you used to be a rocket scientist. I, that's, that's what I did for a bunch of years. For like 25 years, I was an aerospace engineer with, uh, most of it was with a small firm in, Utah. I had uh, a couple of Boeing contracts. My main contract uh, contracts were Learjet and Cessna, and I was also the actual rocket part of it was I was a uh, project engineer on Tactical Tomahawk. So, have um, any of the missiles you wow. fired or, or helped build actually like been fired that you know of? Yes. So you've seen one go from nothing I, to built to Launch. in the air yes so wow. the experience and here's here's the ego crushing experience that i had in my life as uh, an aerospace engineer i would bring home recently declassified videos of rockets of of uh, the one of tactical tomahawk going home and there's each tactical tomahawk there's a nose piece that has that holds a camera that's when you mm-hmm. see the footage mm-hmm. on tv of it flying in and then all of a sudden it goes kaboom kaboom and it the camera goes out so i had videos like that and you know i'm in recovery myself and you have nine years, right? Uh, coming, uh, nine years. It'll be 10 in May. Ooh. And one of the first jobs I had after I was, you know, rebuilding my life, I was a manager at a movie theater. And I worked at a movie theater once. It, it's, it's fun. fun. It is. I it's saw like, a lot of movies. I saw tons of movies. Did they give you posters? Um, yes. No, I, I, well, I could have got posters, uh-huh. but, uh, but I didn't. Opted I was, <laughs> I, I just wasn't. Into you were a manager there? Yeah. Hmm. And in the, you know, so I, the worst thing you have to worry about is burning popcorn and if, people not showing up. Well, not even that because it was a big company. So we'd play the movie no matter mm-hmm. what. Yeah. But um, it was back before my company was transitioning from film to digital. And so we had to string all the, 
projectors. The projectors. Cool. And so if a film broke, that's, you know, mm-hmm. another bad I always thing. wanted to do that. It, and it was fun. Yeah. I, I loved doing that too. And so my son, who was in his 20s at the time, came to visit me. And as I mentioned, I would, had taken home recently declassified videos mm-hmm. and would play them at home. And he... I'm stringing, I'm taking him upstairs in the, in the projector room and I'm stringing a, a mm-hmm. projector. And he says, dad, this is the coolest job you've ever had. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it, it like, was really ego crushing, yeah. right? You're like, I built rockets, <laughs> man. But, but it was cool. It was, it was fun. Mm-hmm. What's uh, the most memorable movie you remember from your time there? Okay. So at one time, 127 hours was playing. Okay. And James Franco chops his arm off. In, Spoiler alert. Yeah. Invariably, mm-hmm. I would do theater checks and I would, when he's cutting through the nerve, yeah. that's when I would walk into the theater when it's because it, I mean, they uh-huh. have it, they have this, they're making that sound yeah. in the movie yeah. to illustrate that he's cutting through a nerve. And that was every time I walked into the theater to a check, to do a check, it was in that scene. So that's wow. the most memorable. Hmm. So you said that the movies run anyway? The, yeah. if, whether there's people there or not. That's interesting. We went to see a movie the other day and I asked the same question. I'm like, do they run them anyway if nobody shows up? But I would think that they had to, right? Yeah, they, they, it's scheduled. Just, Especially with digital, it doesn't, right. I mean, they don't even need anybody. In fact, they don't. they will time them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have, they're on timers, so nobody wow. even needs to be there. The movie I remember seeing the most uh, when I worked at the movie theater was Constantine. Do you remember, does oh. anybody remember that movie? Good movie. Mm-hmm. I like that movie. I've seen it like... 120 times. So you went from rocket surgeon mm-hmm. to movie, movie theater, theater manager, which seemed to, more gratifying mm-hmm. um, to your son, <laughs> to, to my son, obviously mm-hmm. the movie theater to me, I'd say, I, well, and this is because it was early in my recovery. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't actively using substances, but I was, um, and I'm going to out myself as kind of a scumbag. Um, I was a part, another part of my addiction has to do with, with relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was just discovering that that was probably, you know, that that was primary mm-hmm. relationship issues. And, um, so you so might've been womanizing it up is what I, you're saying. Exactly. That's you're exactly playing the film. Well, and at movie theaters, there's, it's like populated with, 19 year old girls mm-hmm. and I had a job and some stability. And so I was like the coolest guy in the world. And I knew how to dress and I was yeah. like the coolest you're pretty guy well, in the world. Yeah, you're well put together. So, so it was, but that was also the big highlight to me that, you know, I would have loved to met Will in his man horn days. <laughs> it was, it, the we real and friends, we would have been. <laughs> the realization came when I was dating. Uh, a young woman who mm-hmm. was the same age as my daughter. Uh, and I went, okay, there's something wrong with this picture. And that's when I right. dug into the relationship. Real part, right. But mm-hmm. it was, I'm sorry. It, <laughs> no, it, it, it was, it, it was, but I also, you know, I went, you know, this is just kind of scummy. Um, mm, so after being a movie theater manager, mm-hmm. which I think is just as cool as being a rocket scientist, uh, it led you to working in the recovery industry, yes? It, it did. Um, was there a specific story? Yes. So I... Um, Is it movie-related? It, it, no. 
No, it's not. It's a movie theater. There is a movie theater <laughs> tie-in. So again, to and this I'm wasn't captivated. This so. wasn't this wasn't as bad. But uh, so I was in a relationship mm-hmm. with a young woman who was born the year that I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. She was 26. I was not 26. Yeah. And it was, uh, uh, she was, I later found out diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder. Mm. And so we were together for a year and we broke up every day for that entire year. Oh, wow. And it was, and that, again, that was part of mm-hmm. what led me to the realization that I had relationship issues and toward the end of the movie theater time, I, you know, I had just, I'd answered, well, one, I met the woman who became my wife mm-hmm. and she's an adult, by the mm-hmm. way, she's, right. that was my next she's question. within, mm-hmm. within a few years of me, she's younger than me, but within a, a few years of me. Um, and as I just, as I found, was finding out that I could be friends with a woman mm-hmm. and not just have a woman be the object of, you know, stuff. Right. We weren't the object of each other's desire. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't goal oriented behavior towards sex. Mm -hmm. Um, I found out that I could be friends with a woman and fostered a relationship and started working on myself. Uh, went to some therapy and, uh, dug deeper into the, you know, I, Part of what I utilized in, as my pathway to recovery was 12-step, several different 12-step groups. Mm-hmm. And so I dug into some of the uh, the relationship recommendations that mm-hmm. 12-step offered me. I went to therapy. Um, and at that time, I just, there was a, a Craigslist ad for uh, line staff at a, at a treatment center. Wow. And I answered the ad and... Um, that there's a a whole story with that as well. We got time. Uh, <laughs> so the journey that I got there. So I'm discovering that I have relationship and sex issues, and that it's probably secondary to my the primary and my substance use disorder was was secondary. So I'm digging into that. Uh, I answer this ad. I go to uh, the first interview and. I'm driving from St. George in Utah to uh, 40 minutes outside of St. George's Zion National Park. Mm-hmm. And I'm driving essentially to Zion. And uh, the treatment center was on, uh, it was on 75 acres. Five acres was the treatment center property. And it was this beautiful, uh, about 17,000 square foot home pool hot tub, nice things like that. I drive up to this place. I meet with, um, the person who, uh, started the treatment center. It was called ARG at Zion Park. And the man's name is HR Brown. He also started Renaissance Ranch in, Mm. in Salt Lake, but H is what everybody calls him. So I meet with him and I'm in this, the first interview and we're just, you know, he's just asking me questions and we're talking and, they, and he said, why do you want to do this? And, um, so the day before that interview, my 
now former wife called me and said, um, Paul overdosed and died. Mm. And so I'm relaying this, I'm relaying the story to H and I said, yeah, my, my ex-wife called. She said, this friend of ours died, died. And he looks at me, he goes, Polly. And Paul had gone through uh, Renaissance Ranch twice. And mm-hmm. so he knew Santa. H really well. And we're, you know, I'm in a job interview and we're both in tears. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, uh, if there's any way I just blew this interview, it was because I'm sobbing like a child. But the and other guy was crying too, right? It, and he H was, was too. He was too. Um, That's a connection right there. It, it was, but, and I felt some, uh, some emotional release. I felt mm-hmm. good about it. Uh, but didn't, you know, coming from the business world, I didn't feel great about it leaving. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I got called back to a second interview and the day, the morning of my former spouse calls and said, Aaron passed away. Wow. And uh, so I'm waiting. I'd I go stop to the answering calls. From I, her. I know it. <laughs> I, I, you'd think that I did, uh, that I would, but I, but I didn't. Um, so I'm sitting in the, in the living room area waiting to go back to interview in the office and h comes out and he says did you hear about aaron and mm-hmm. he knew aaron too aaron had gone through renaissance ranch and it was different this time we were both kind of angry about it mm-hmm. and uh, went in and talked about it another great interview um and left again feeling good i'd you know it was great because i'd after i left uh my uh, again another story is the way i got out of aerospace but mm-hmm. uh, i'll save that um so you had this but cathartic i had experience and i hadn't i hadn't been called back for a first in, you know hadn't gotten any a lot of first interviews let alone um, two let alone two and so i felt good I, i'm driving away uh, I get called back for a third interview. I meet with then all the clinical staff that was going to be there. Uh, get, again, great interview. Um, and at this time, I had 20 months clean. Mm-hmm. And th- they kind of closed out the interview saying, we really like you. Everything's great. But we have a company policy that we need two years. you four months, four months short. Yeah. And... So I, again, you know, I was a little disappointed, but I went away going, you know, this is a win. I, uh, they said, you know, we'll call you in four months. And I'm like, mm, yeah, sure you will. But, um, I left on a, on an emotional high. And about two weeks later, H's wife, Karen calls me and said, you know what? We talked about it. We prayed about it. We got to have you. Mm-hmm. And that's what started my and and that that job was for uh, it was a house manager okay and and what i did is uh it was really small staff like what you have mm-hmm. here um uh so it was me uh like my manager and and uh an lcsw mm-hmm. and i got there in the morning and i cooked breakfast for the guys there was a chef that came on. He cooked lunch, prepped dinner, and then I served dinner for him. And then on the weekends, I cooked breakfast, lunch, and dinner for him. So, you know, I was there 12 hours a day, mm-hmm. every day. Well, three on, four off. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of a, a nurse's schedule. 
I was there a lot and um, it just kind of shifted from that to um, assistant program director uh, for men to assistant program director for men and women and then men's women's program director. And now you're here. And now I'm working for the foundation. Yep. Was the move to Las Vegas from Utah a big transition? It was. Um, the The treatment center closed, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the one in Zion, the one it, it, it had moved down into St. George, and um, I started uh, entered the interview process with Foundation in October. And it was slowly progressing, but it, nothing was finalized until, uh, so on like the, the 11th of December last year. Um, how long has the foundation been open? Uh, since 2005. Oh, so a long time. Yeah. Uh, so about, about the 11th of December last year, I got a verbal offer okay. and I went to work on, the next week and Wednesday, uh, they kind of surprised everybody and said, "Oh, by the way, we're closing." And wow! Wait, when? In, in oh, in Utah. Utah. In Utah. Yeah. I thought you were talking about that's what. No, that's mm-hmm. what got me to. Right. Oh, yeah. That's what got yeah. me here. Like, wait. wait a second. <laughs> it seems like you know it was kind of meant to be. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, you know, I my wife and I had talked about it, and we kind of felt like even before it was closing, we went, you know, I think this is what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And then it closed and I stuck around to help them tidy things up. And I started to commute here in January and did that through, we didn't move until May. Mm. So like five months. So I was already here. Mm -hmm. Um, Transition has been harder for her. She lived here before, like 20 years ago with her first husband, but I just, I kind of like bigger cities. When I go mm-hmm. someplace, I wander the streets. I get to know the people. Mm-hmm. I am more comfortable in a bigger setting. Right. Does your wife work in the industry as well? She does not. She works uh, at an accounting firm. Oh, fair mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. Why, yeah. Do, why do you think peer recovery support is so important? Well, I, I, or important at all? I, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's been you know, it's evidence-based. It's been shown to be effective. Um, the main reason I believe is, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, I, I am a big proponent of, of therapy. I've utilized a lot of it. Uh, I'm a big proponent of inpatient treatment. Um, I utilize that. I'm, uh, a big proponent of, of, uh, intensive outpatient and outpatient, I think everything is needed in a, in a recovery oriented system of care, literally anything mm-hmm. that can help you. Yeah. Whatever you can find. And the, 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 but the benefit I see of, of peer to peer is in my own case, I utilized that peer connection. Um, I wasn't a big fan of, uh, and this is not, you know, 12 step friendly so much for me to say this We're okay with because that. I was, because I was a big, I, I, I that's part of my path, but mm-hmm. sponsorship, I sponsored some guys. I had a sponsor, I have a sponsor, mm-hmm. but for me, it was again, somebody telling me what to do. Here's what to do. Um, 
therapy was for me the therapy that didn't work was when somebody said here's what to do here's yeah. what you should do um the therapy that works for me is when somebody talks to me and we figure it out together we connect on a mm -hmm. not on a personal basis but on a human basis right. we can we find things that we can connect to and uh therapies are presented to me not as a here's what you need to do it's here's the process we're going to go through to get you to someplace where you want to be and in peer support it's kind of the same thing it's you know I can. There's I, no hierarchy. No, I, I can. Yeah, there isn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's peer to peer. It's somebody. <laughs> I'm not better than them. I'm not worse than them. We're just two people. Uh, the only difference is I have some recovery time behind me, and I have some experiences that have allowed me to put a life back together or build a new life, mm -hmm. and. I can offer them, I can say, here's this set of things that might work for you. Uh, and instead of saying, do this, do this, and do this, I say, what are you going to be likely to do? Mm -hmm. Let's sit down and you choose some things and I'll see if my experience can help you to utilize right. those. And so it's, it's um, putting the person in the center of mm -hmm. their own, not treatment, but their own recovery and having them say, uh, having them mark their own success. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I can give them a pat on the back and I should, but it's more when they see a set of goals that they've accomplished that they are reinforcing themselves instead of, you know, mm -hmm. one of the biggest things in my recovery was my own internal validation versus somebody saying, good job. Right. Yeah. Because that I, I'm not a dog. Mm -hmm. I don't need a pat. Right. I need to be able to validate myself. I think that's really nice um, because for two reasons. One, because you learned how to give yourself the internal validation that you need. And then the other piece of it is that I think that the peer to peer relationship um, removes fear of um, like a teacher telling you that you've done a bad job and maybe it removes some of the shame if somebody does relapse or does something that they're, you know, the person in charge told them to do, if they don't do that, then they feel shame and might not come back. Well, and that's, again, that's, that's part of the reason I'm, and again, I'm not anti 12 step. I'm not anti sponsor, mm -hmm. but as, as you mentioned, um, it's hierarchical. Right. Yeah. I mean that this he's you're the boss of me kind mm -hmm. of a thing. I don't need that. I need to be I need to be self-empowering. Mm -hmm. The thing that really resonates with me with the foundation is the fact that it's multiple pathways because obviously there are people out there who need that person to tell them this is what you need to do. And there are people out there who don't. I mean we live in multivariable you know mm -hmm. society there's well, obviously not a blueprint to life no mm -hmm. and and there and most of the honestly if you are uh involved in substance use you are likely to run afoul of the law mm -hmm. at some point sometimes right. it's not a necessary part of it but often times that's what happens and so there's no shortage of people telling you what to do mm -hmm. right. a judge your own attorney mm -hmm. i mean 
your family is probably the biggest one that's telling you what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but a probation officer, all those things, there's, there's, an, there's enough, big enough group out there to tell you what to do, mm-hmm. tell you what you have to do. What I needed was somebody saying, look where you are. Do you, do you like this? Mm-hmm. And if you don't, what are you going to do to get out of it? Mm-hmm. And again, as opposed to me, me telling you, it's kind of, we interviewed, I don't know if you know the man, uh, Tyson Kern, he's a spiritual counselor Mm -hmm. and we recently did an interview with him and he kind of had a similar philosophy with people and, um, like recovery. Whereas, um, in a more spiritual aspect, he'd get people to come in. They'd be like, I have this problem, this problem, this problem. And it's like, okay, as opposed to me telling you, let's, let's find routes together mm-hmm. spiritually and that and that's i mean the the multiple pathways i think you guys should uh mm-hmm. meet up <laughs> I, I i'm interested mm-hmm. um the multiple pathways i needed it because you know i had tried 12 step on its own i had tried treatment on its own i tried therapy on its own and it was uh, I mean, one of the things that I was introduced to very early was uh, was Wayne Dyer. And I love Wayne Dyer. Not all the poppy psychology stuff necessarily, but the main thing that he brought to me was, okay, here's this. He introduced me, one, to, to different uh, spiritual thoughts. And the, the main one was um, the idea that he took from the Buddhists that... If, you know, a lot of times in treatment, there's, oh, let's build you a God box Mm -hmm. and let's put these things in there. And and Wayne Dyer introduced to me the idea that, you know, if you put things in a box, not everything's going to fit. So Mm -hmm. the Buddhists say, if it doesn't fit, change the vessel. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is what I've been looking for. I can take, you know, I like that from the Buddhists. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to put that in my change vessel. I like this from, you know, the the religion of my upbringing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put that in there. But the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to knock the lid off because I want to be able to take in and put in and take things out that that I don't want and adjust and adapt and use whatever I can. I'm going to call that an infinity bag. There we go. (laughs) That's really empowering, though, too, to be able to decide that you get to make your own choices like that. Do you think uh, the average treatment facility holds the same um, beliefs that there are multiple pathways? uh, The good ones. The good ones. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, there's no, there's no shortage of uh, treatment centers that utilize twelve steps. There's no shortage of treatment centers that say we're not twelve steps. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People can get healthy, confined recovery multiple ways wherever they are. I right. mean, treatment doesn't necessarily equal recovery it's what do you think the average recovery center embraces that like Mm. the multiple the average ones don't Mm -hmm. okay the good ones do okay there's a lot of average ones what's something that you would share with people about recovery or about selecting a treatment option for them like if they're listening and they're in living with an addiction now or have a loved one living with an addiction because there's so much information out there and that's kind of part of why we wanted to start this too, is to provide information and resources to people that may be looking for 
help, but don't know how to discern what's good, who has the infinity bag and the who av- has the, the average the from box. the not average. Right. So, and, and Dr. Sarah, you mentioned <laughs> it in the, in, in earlier, mm-hmm. um, if somebody can, I recommend that, that when they're make that they first, that they make calls that they don't say, mom, find me a treatment center or right. husband, find me a treatment <laughs> mm-hmm. center. I recommend that they make the calls themselves if they have the ability, um, but I recommend that they ask questions on, you know, what's your program as far as uh, shame reduction mm-hmm. and shame resilience. Um, I, I think for me, uh, you know, I grew up in a, a religious background and and it wasn't that shame was being thrown at me by mm-hmm. my religion or by my parents, but I accepted a lot of shame, just inherent shame, thinking that I was a bad person mm-hmm. and that's why I did these bad things. And the biggest, one of the biggest realizations, one was, I mean, a, a, and it goes along with that uh, self-validation was, uh, you know, I didn't accept that other people could tell me that I was a bad person. I stopped accepting from myself that I was a bad person. Mm -hmm. And it it was through uh, a couple of good therapists that I work with at the treatment center that I was working at that, that, you know, they introduced me the ideas of, of shame resilience. And um, so I, I recommend that that be like question number one is, how do you, you know, how do you work on, on shame? Mm-hmm. And then on uh, the second would be, uh, how do you work on trauma? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question, Dr. Sarah. Oh, yes. Uh, give the audience a little bit, uh, about the idea of shame. Cause me personally, mm-hmm. I mean, I know the word shame, but from a recovery aspect, I don't mm-hmm. really understand other than like, I, I, I feel bad because I did drugs. Right. Not me personally, but just in general. So I think that, Will, you really hit it on the head when you said that even if somebody's done bad things, they're not a bad person. So sometimes people have this really dichotomous or black and white view of themselves where people are either good or they're bad and that's it. And so people that, you know, hurt other people's feelings or, you know, cause pain, then they believe themselves to be bad. And so the shame piece is really heavily tied into your identity and your identity are facets about you like a partner or a spouse or a son or a daughter or um, an employee. And so a lot of times if we make a mistake at work or if we make a mistake in a relationship, we think, well, now I'm a bad partner or now I'm a bad employee. Instead of saying like or believing yourself to be a good employee that made a mistake or a good partner that accidentally hurt somebody's feelings and kind of being able to distinguish the difference between those two things um the shame spiral comes when you believe yourself to be bad in in parts of your identity Hmm. does that make sense like bad dog Mm -hmm. versus bad act right you know you did this dog Mm -hmm. that's bad Mm -hmm. but come here good boy kind of a thing and it's i mean it's i mean that was part of my upbringing was just the and not nece- again not necessarily from my parents but from the world you know shame on you bad boy you know in school that's you know that bad mm-hmm. boys do that and well 
Right. I guess I, I was I was getting maybe shame confused with embarrassment. Guilt and yeah. shame. Or, yeah. yeah, guilt is more behavioral. And then shame is more internalized. Mm-hmm. So when we internalize it about fundamental no fundamental parts of ourselves, you know. I, I, I yeah. always... I you always... can check out our Instagram and yeah. see that. No Speaking shame. of Instagram, mm-hmm. what's the thing with you and carrots? <laughs> it's just this thing that I want to... Because I, I used to... I commuted from... Never change. Commuted from St. George to Las Vegas mm-hmm. every day for months. How long is that? Three hours? It's... About two, I can do it in two. It's like Mm -hmm. two and a half hours. And I would, so I would find myself with a bag of trail mix, Mm -hmm. like a three pound bag, and I could kill that in in a trip easily. And Mm -hmm. so I went, I am going to weigh like 400 pounds (laughs) by the time I move down here. And so I started taking carrots and then the trip just, you know, I would put my phone up in the little dock and I would listen mm-hmm. to music and eat carrots and talk to people on my, on my travels. On your FaceTime. Yep. And it just, it just stuck. We're so happy that it did. It's, we love the carrots of Instagram. It's, it's my thing. We have it's, the desk warrior here mm-hmm. and the sound hound. This is the greatest is day. It is. <laughs> I know. So I, I, so you're, tr- you're trending. I keep trying to make it trend. You're just net, well, you're not organically trending. After tonight, oh, it's yeah, going exactly. to be. The carrots bold. are legendary. Mm-hmm. I heard about the carrots mm-hmm. before I saw them. So, Right. What would you listen to on your trip? I have a varied playlist. Give me a couple. Um, well, let me guess. I want to say Billy Joel's in there. No. <laughs> Abba is in there. Abba. Abba. Yeah. But I, so it will go from Hank Williams, the elder mm-hmm. to the clash mm-hmm. to I can see one, that. Of my, one of my personal favorites right now is Jason Isbell. I don't know him. It, it, you need to know Jason <laughs> Isbell. He's in recovery, oh. as a matter of fact. Awesome. Okay. Do you know him personally? I want to know him. I have a, a he, man crush. <laughs> I have a man crush on him, and his wife is Amanda Shires, and she is equally as awesome. She's mm. a, a fiddle. Those, like, She's not a violin, violinist. She calls herself a, a fiddle player. Uh, so they're like one of those like power couples, like they, they're remarkably talented. They people. are oh. Americanas. Wow. They are the. They are. Tim and Faith only talented. Oh, wow. Hate to love them. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't know nice. anything about them. You need to. You uh, need to. I like a good fiddle. <laughs> like the Charlie and, Daniels and, band and fiddle? And she is. Yeah. And she's, she's uh, a, a, a she beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. She sings too. She sings too. I'm I, for I, it. Mm-hmm. Fiddle yeah. and a good woman singer? Mm-hmm. She kind of sounds like she has kind of a warbly, almost a, like a Dolly Parton. Oh, I love warble, it. Yeah. only only a little tighter. I listened to a lot of the Carter family back in the, the old Carter family mm-hmm. stuff. There, they figure in because Johnny Cash is mm-hmm. yeah, needs to be in everybody's playlist. Yeah. I agree. I love Johnny Cash. Because I, I think the relationship piece in recovery is something that's usually missed a lot of times because it's really individually focused. So how do you balance working on yourself and then also nurturing your relationship? One of the the earliest things that I learned was, you know, I'm not... I'm not in relationships. I'm not overly demonstrative. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? I don't, I'm not, I, I don't walk hand in hand. I don't kiss in public a lot or I didn't. Um, I just didn't, you know, I, it was, you do now. I do more so now and still okay. not, but 
Um, I hold my girlfriend's I, hand everywhere we go. But I realized that that was uh, that that and um, communication, talking, were needed parts. And I'm I'm uh, introverted mm-hmm. as uh, in general. I sure. don't you know I that's one of the reasons I I use substances mm-hmm. is I was involved in. I was always involved in business that needed me to talk Mm -hmm. and I always needed some kind of social lubrication. Um, but as uh, I separated myself from substances, I needed to push myself out Mm -hmm. into the, into the public. And the first forum for that was, was my relationship with my, with my now spouse. Do you hold hands now? I do. You should see yeah. his face. He's it's, not happy about I'm it. Not, I'm not. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it, I'm not ashamed or mm-hmm. anything. It's just, I'm, I'm just intensely private. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, well, now it's, I, well, I should no, be, sm- I should be smiling, but All because right. my wife is much prettier than me <laughs> and I, I go out with her. And if I don't hold her hand, people will say, well, that's a cute father and daughter there. Uh, and so I need to I yeah, should at least be, you know, grabbing my territory. Embrace right? it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You're learning something yeah, right learning. now. Exactly. Loud and proud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to hear about this story on how you stopped being a rocket in, uh, scientist. Okay. So rocket surgeon. I have a friend that's an aeronautical engineer too. And we call him the rocket Rocket surgeon. Surgeon. Yeah. Dr. Rockets. Mm. I want to give you a shirt that says it's rocket science. So when I was 30, I got, uh, injured volunteering at the special Olympics, pulling out, we'd finished up an event, pulling out tent stakes and just shredded my lower back. Uh, The discs, L five S one, the, the disc in between just, fell apart and that was in the end of june by uh mid august i had to have surgery i'd lost strength about 30 percent of the strength in my right leg and it was an amazing surgery Uh, the pain was gone the strength almost all of it came back Um, but about two years later uh, so when they did the, I had L5S1 fusion, they took a bone donation from my right hip to make the, so it's a titanium, two titanium inserts and, and bone putty mm. in essence that, that made this, Sure. they built a new bone and cool. out, of, bone. out of hip bone and titanium. Wow. Donation. Yeah. And on the donation site, I had, I started to get pain that mimicked the same pain. Mm. And so, uh, in about three months time, I went from Lortab to Oxy Mm -hmm. to, I was buying morphine from a, a doctor that was an addict as well. And then I bought, well, it started, I bought Demerol from him. I bought morphine sulfate and I brought, bought Dilaudid from him. And he, uh, he's now passed away uh, in his addiction. Um, but he'd gone to, he, he went to like Hazelden five different times, Mm -hmm. 
lost his license. He this was like the third time he got caught is wow. when he so it yanked my supply out from underneath me. And so I went through withdrawal for the first time in my life and then quickly switched to heroin. Mm-hmm. And at 36, I was addicted to heroin. And for the next several, well, for the next two years, I kept it together at work. Um, but then I didn't. And, you know, I'd been there a long time. So they, uh, you know, they drug tested me and they said, you know, you got to go. They let me keep my retirement and they laid me off so I could get, you know, that was nice of them. it was, it was nice. Um, uh, again, I didn't, I didn't see the problem. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, this is okay. I struggled for a couple months and then got a job as a, as a lab manager at another aerospace uh, place for me. And I was making more money. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, no problem. This is, it was, better. Me- it was meant yeah. to be. It's better. See, mm-hmm. like I, everything's coming up well. Yeah. Like, Thanks, heroin. Yeah. yeah. And got, you know, had this nice job, uh, started going to meetings, was kept it together for a year. And then like, what do you mean I, by kept it together? I went to meetings. I went to work every day. Uh, You're I still was, using? Uh, I, at that time, I wasn't. So I was. I had gone to meetings. I was clean for a year. I won't say I was in recovery because it was just I didn't take opportunity to use. I was. Uh, I had a commute of about fifty minutes in the morning and then about three hours at night because of traffic. And so I just didn't, I didn't have any time to use. So you would have. Well, so almost a year to the date, I found myself with money in my pocket and opportunity. And I was about 15 minutes from one of the hottest drug zones in Salt Lake City. And I went, hey, I have some time. Let's, and I was high within, you know, I had heroin within an hour Mm -hmm. and spun out of that. Uh, kind of the same way, um, quicker. I was there for two years and then went from living at home to my wife kicked me out and I was living on the streets of Salt Lake while living in my truck. And All I, while building rockets. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. they, I was doing chemistry on rockets at mm-hmm. the time. And again, I'm, I'm maintaining this job and... Then I got arrested mm. uh, and tumbled out of that, struggled for a couple months and tumbled into an even better job doing research and development at a... Thanks, everyone. Exactly. <laughs> Again. At a, at a nutraceutical company. Wow. And it was, I'm like, see, it was the hard science that was doing it. It was, mm. and this is the softest thing, research and development in a... You know, nutraceutical pseudoscience, um, and I'm making an unbelievable amount of money doing it. And I did that for two years and was, you know, on the third floor, same floor as the, the company owner. Uh, the company, the time I was there, I went from a $75 million company to a $150 million company. So my trajectory wow. had nowhere to go but up. Mm-hmm. And then I found myself uh, arrested mm-hmm. again. And How'd you get arrested? I got a DUI. 
In your truck? In This was in... Slash home? In my car. Well, now I'm back. I, I was back with my family again, mm-hmm. and I'm driving this bright, shiny red, you know, Chevy Tahoe, mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, that's where. Did your family know about here? They did. I was the so I was married for thirty years. The last five years, I was in and out of the house mm-hmm. for the entire time. So my my former spouse knew about it. My kids know about it, and that's part of the unceremonious part of the yeah. the tumble. Good now. Ah, good now for the most part. Yeah, have mm-hmm. I'm. Uh, the way I say it is I, I have a strained relationship with my daughter. I have two sons and a daughter, um, a strained relationship. She still kind of struggles with me. Mm-hmm. Um, my sons I'm, I've reconciled with. So uh, the way I always say it is that's, you know, two out of three puts me as a Hall of Fame dad. <laughs> if I'm going by, you know, baseball Hall of Fame standards, mm-hmm. I'm batting 666. So. Right? Mm-hmm. 667, yeah. She may come around. She may. Yeah, she will. Mm. We'll see. She may. Father-daughter relationships are hard. Mm, they are. How, Caitlin? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's They are challenging. They're, it's different. It's And she's my youngest. Mm-hmm. She's the baby, and we had the closest relationship, so... Uh, she took it the mm-hmm. hardest and she didn't want me to be married to her mom, but she mm-hmm. didn't want me to divorce her mom either. Right. So on a scale from one to 10, how important do you think it is that family members engage in their own recovery process? 10. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. They, they have, well, and, and that's, I mean, codependency is huge in, uh, in families and when people can realize that, you know, they have to, the only one they can change is themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it allows whole family healing or it allows them to heal even if their family member yeah. doesn't. No matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, what's something you do on a daily basis that like work on your recovery? Yeah. I don't know if there's like a specific term. Fine tune it. it Take care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I eat carrots on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> that that yeah. uh, and, and, how's your, and how's your eyesight? Is, is, that, there, is that improved too? Yeah. No, I still wear glasses. Yeah, that's is, okay. there, is there is there Style car- points. carrot treatment center? <laughs> um, one of the, I mean, one of the so one of the things that I mentioned that I, I grew up in a religious background. Um, you know, I was taught how to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, I know how to pray, uh, but. Everything in my life that I ever did, most of the bad things that I did, I became addicted to. Uh, prayer, a good thing, I never became addicted to that. I never, I never prayed um, or didn't think I did, mm-hmm. but I had somebody introduce the concept of meditation to me mm-hmm. as a form of prayer. And so... I made this connection Mm -hmm. last week. Yeah. And so meditation is, is something that I do every day. And it's, uh, what I did, what I always did was I always, I was always inside my head. Mm -hmm. I was always browbeating myself. I was always, you know, why didn't I do this? If I could change that, you know, just second guessing myself. And, um, what this person taught me is how to turn that, internal dialogue 
turn it outward and have that be as my, my, you know, to use a 12 step vernacular, my conscious contact with a higher power. So since we've been doing this podcast, I mean, I've always heard about meditation, Mm -hmm. but, uh, since I've kind of been looking into like what people do to maintain a healthy life, not only in recovery, but in normal life, meditation is a constant. And I'm really surprised I didn't know much about Mm -hmm. meditation other than like something to do with monks. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it should have been something I've learned when I was a child. It should be something we all did. I mean, uh, was it? certain amount of mindfulness daily i mean mm-hmm. it it can repair brain damage yeah mm-hmm. and it's just not in the forefront of any of the conversations uh here about recovery right. it's always like a side thing that people say like oh yeah and i meditate right. it's, it's but it's a constant there. it's getting there now and it's uh, a lot of the uh so as I mentioned, the the shame resilience and the people that I worked with there were also uh, one of the one of the doctors that I worked with um, professionally uh, did a lot of uh, research, brain mapping, um, having to do with uh, people uh, that had suffered trauma, mm-hmm. and that mindfulness is the, the mindfulness and spirituality have been shown to repair rebuild those pathways that were that were damaged meditation seems scary to me meditation is a game changer and i think that the word meditation is scary to a lot of people for i mean it's like a religious trigger word Mm -hmm. a lot of times or just the like oh crap i gotta be alone with my own brain that's the other fear part Mm -hmm. too thinking about it like oh meditation keeps coming up why don't I meditate? Oh yeah, it's fucking scary. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that, it, <laughs> yeah. The, the the game changer for me was just, you know, I'm gonna be. I mean, do you? Who doesn't have a constant dialogue in their head? Right. And it it there's two choices really. You can it can be positive or it can be negative, mm-hmm. and invariably as human beings it turns negative. Mm-hmm. And so when I learned that you know it's just it's that's it's up to me i can change that just by the words that i use for myself and that's where that shame comes in is you know just changing the way i talk to myself it you know if i'm if i believe in god it can be my contact with god if i don't believe in god it it can be it's just me talking better to myself mm-hmm. now before you started doing this you obviously had a practice right there was some type of practice that of of changing that dialogue. Yes, uh, yes. Um, the the main thing that I did is I listened to really loud music and mm-hmm. I ride my bike. Yeah, and it quiets the the loud music, quiets the noise in my head, and it kind Just of imagine levels you the on playing your bike, field. Like we're not gonna take it's <laughs> it's more uh, think of. Of real big fish and really loud ska mm-hmm. music. Oh, you're a ska fan. Yeah, that's so that's what <laughs> I thought. Mama like Reggie and the Foolies. It is an ABBA, ABBA fan. So well, riding his bike. No, no, I can see it in the mask. Yeah. It's, it's he probably actually, used to wear like the checkered shirt. No, I, mm-hmm. I. Did you ever play the tuba? I played the trumpet. That's right, trumpet. That's what I meant. <laughs> Did you ever go skanking? 
I did. I did. Uh, well, not skanking as much as moon stomping. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. It's not much difference, right? Uh, a, a little bit. Anyways. It's just on how high, how high you put your knees. <laughs> Back to what I was saying. Uh, what was I saying? Previous practices prior to meditation. Oh, yes. Um, and how you're afraid of your own thoughts. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's true. Um, so what I'm getting at is when you first started changing this di- inner, inner dialogue, did it feel disingenuous? Like it wasn't you? Like you were trying to be somebody that you weren't? Because this is an issue that I have when I try to be more positive. It's something I'm working on. Is I'm like, yeah, smile more, Chris. Fuck smiling. You ain't a smiler. It did. Mm-hmm. And then... It, it, uh, it slowly changes, it, and I, I just don't know where that line is. Where it's like, okay, who am I now? Well, and it was, I mean, two steps forward, three steps back. Because my, I mean, sounds like how I edit. my 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 inner dialogue is like, like piece of shit. You, mm-hmm. you know, it's honestly it that, feels so comfortable. It, it does because you know, douchebag's my favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My favorite self uh description yeah it it is you know and so it did um but uh as far as the transition between internal validation and external and honestly being a lascivious scumbag man whore yeah it helped because i i was getting external validation right and so I started to feel that, well, maybe there is something to me. And then when I coupled that with therapy to go, okay, you know, external validation doesn't need to be sexual validation. It doesn't need to be somebody, you know, it could be you. desiring me. It just needs to be somebody saying, you know, wanting to, t- you know, it, it, I stopped, I was introverted. I stopped being scared of women for one and I stopped being scared of people as a whole. And so I could initiate dialogue with them because that was, uh, I mean, that felt disingenuous, disingenuous as well mm-hmm. because I didn't really like people. I didn't care for them. <laughs> right. I, I, Who does? I, well, I had no, I, I didn't have a valid <laughs> self opinion. I didn't think very highly of myself. And so I didn't, you know, I'm like, why am I going to talk to this person? Yeah. I have no reason to. And then uh, as I, you know, in 12-step meetings, one of the things that it, it taught me was, you know, I'm going to sit in this room and I'm going to be uncomfortable sitting in silence or I'm going to say, hi, my name's Will and I'm this and this is what happened. And people sit in silence and they don't, you know, crosstalk doesn't happen and so I get to say what I say mm-hmm. and then afterwards somebody will come up and say, you know, that really touched me because of this, this and this. And so there was it was initially validating on that personal basis. And then again, it changed the thought in my head that, you know, maybe there is some worth here. Maybe I am worth that. And so again, once I switched it from, you know, I need to have validation from women to I need to have validation from people to these people like me because I'm I here. like myself. Yeah. And it began be- it makes began, sense. Mm-hmm. It began to feel genuine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know if I can get there. 
You yeah, can. But <laughs> you can. Mm-hmm. I like when Chris gets authentic. Authenticity. That's mm-hmm. that's a hallmark of of that whole piece that you just asked. Is mm-hmm. yes. Is the real you? I don't know. I'm trying. Keep trying. Yeah. How old are you now, Will? I am fifty-two. Impossible. Impossible. Heroin is a preservative. Is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a disclaimer. Mm-hmm. No, to audience, not that is right. not true. You get, you get more higher paying jobs and you never yes. age. <laughs> I thought this was, you know, a recovery podcast, right. but apparently. The asterisk is go to F Street and find out the right. reality yeah. of this. Um, so after you got arrested, right? Which time? The last time, I guess. Okay. Which was when you lost all your science jobs? Um, no. <laughs> Did you get a better paying job? No. Oh. He's like, after I was arrested, right. they gave me a million dollars and a seat on the Senate. And right. I'm just going to, since I have two um, uh, two treatment professionals in here, I'm just going to say, um, if you really want to make money, uh, mm-hmm. don't get into this business. <laughs> so, no, I'm not making uh, this that wasn't is, my question. I, I know, but th- this is mm-hmm. so. As far as money goes, I'll uh, give you another anecdote from from my treatment time. So the first year, well, the first several years that I worked in treatment, this is something that I would tell the guys who are like, so I want to start a treatment center because I want to be making all the big money and that- like. <clears throat> so the last Christmas bonus that I had working in research and development, there was a few thousand dollars between that Christmas bonus and my yearly salary now. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Do they make recovery rockets? You know, I recently learned that mini carrots are actually just bigger carrots that are you did made. Down. You're I a doctor. I was learning how to change lives, Chris. I didn't learn where many carrots come from. Texas Tech did you think not they have a carrotology right. program. Right, it's so true. You're like, how do they grow these carrots all the same size? I just never thought about it before. I was just enjoying baby carrots and taking them for granted. And then I became a, a mindfulness practitioner, and it all changed. <laughs> can't believe you're on my podcast. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. He wanted us on here because we we're credible, but now For, I'm discredited. Now I'm trying not to right? say that statement anymore. I'm a human, right? <laughs> Are you? No. Where do beets come from? Hard to say, really. Where do peanuts come from? Still unsure. So after you got out of jail, uh, the last time, apparently, uh, I don't know which one that was. Apparently there were a few. So uh, the first the first arrest I had, I, I was charged with 32 felonies. Oof. Uh, the last arrest I had was a probation violation. And I spent, I, I got sentenced to nine months in jail. Oof. I spent six months in jail. Um, How was that? It was, it was good. Not very, but... <laughs> It, it's it, it's when I learned that um, the world goes on, whether mm-hmm. I'm in it or not. And, and me going to jail is just like pushing the pause button. And my For family, you and no one else. Yeah. And my family on the outside was growing and changing. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I couldn't keep pace with 
with that external stuff, but I could work on myself internally. And um, I had a friend that was, um, so when you're in jail, your attorney can come see you basically anytime and uh, clergy can come see you. My, my friend was a member of the clergy program at the jail. And so that's he, a, a religious man. Yes. Yeah. And so he could come it's a in. Loophole. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful, wonderful mm-hmm. loophole um, because he could come in and he could get me out and we could sit in a room, uh, not a barrier visit, mm-hmm. but a one on one visit and uh, play knuckle. No, that's he. That's where we started working on um, the externalization of my internal dialogue, mm-hmm. the meditation part. Right. We started working on that. And so. Um, again, I got out of jail that time and I had decided in there. So the day before I got out, my ex-wife said, so what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to come home. And she's like, "Uh, no, we're going to get divorced. You're not going to be home anymore. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do? And I went, well, I'm going to change everything up then. I'm going to, and I moved, you know, several hundred miles away in my parents basement no it wasn't their basement it was their spare room they have it would have been the basement but they only had a single level home (laughs) um and i started putting into practice all the things that i had begun to now believe and um so that was the the really really the beginning of my recovery in practice Mm -hmm. and that was um you know, before the movie theater job, before the relationship stuff, but that was the, wow. you know, where I made the decision to, to shift. So from our hour long conversation that we've had, here's, here's a couple of things I've noticed. One, you seem like you've always been trying to help people. You said you volunteered at the Special Olympics. Yes. Uh, I mean, the rocket science stuff is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> There's been a few statements you made. I may not be able to retain them right now, but you've kind of, and also throughout this whole conversation and what you've told me about your um, drug use and whatnot, uh, it seemed like you were always trying to work on yourself at the same time. Maybe not succeeding until later, but I don't really know where I'm going with that. But it just it seemed like the, there was a pattern of a good person that whole time. And that, I mean, that goes back to, to the, the shame part mm-hmm. is I didn't necessarily believe that, but I think that, I mean, there might be some people that are, that are categorized as, as not good people, you know, based on some I'm of sure the there's somebody that out there that done. thinks you're a dick. Uh, no, there's plenty of people. <laughs> I mean, but. I, we can call my ex-wife right now, <laughs> but, um, Really, I, I, I always was. Uh, I'm not any better than anybody, yeah, but I'm no, not any no. worse than anybody. That's no, the whole thing. I, I, I mean, I, I, I can tell you I, there's a gap in there, like a, a two-year gap that I didn't have a job at all. Yeah, but I don't think than, a job other really. Other than comp- selling drugs. Right. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't okay. necessarily trying to. I was trying to help people out of their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And trying to help myself into more drugs. But, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I guess I didn't really, uh, I think what I'm trying to get is you, you think of somebody, 
normally who is a heroin addict, you think there's some type of evil there. A lot of times, and I saw no evil in any of your story. That's the stereotype, and I think obviously that's that's kind of what I'm getting to. Mm -hmm. Is that shifting the perception from evil to somebody that's in pain with the. Or just somebody that's normal. This is not that uncommon. Well, and that's, I mean, that's another thing that, that we do at Foundation for Recovery is, um, you know, we do advocacy work uh, as far as uh, stigma reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, just the, the I mean, I just in this interview, I have not said I, I, I said substance use disorder several times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I, I have said, you know, I became addicted to heroin. Um, but I, I try not to say I was a heroin addict. I say it on occasion cause that's still part of the ongoing change as a person who used heroin oh, just mm-hmm. in order to keep myself sure. central to it, to keep a person central to it. And I think that's the, the kind of what you're talking about is there's a perception that, that heroin is this person. Mm-hmm. And that, and I even said, you know, go to F street. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that was not necessarily the most sensitive thing to say, because I don't know what the experience down there. I know some of that experience, mm-hmm. but not everybody that is on, is, F, street is, is on F street, not everybody that's homeless is it on heroin is on heroin or they're not a bad person. They're not. Right. I mean, there's just so much stigma attached to that because we, we look at them and part of it is there's some pity there. There's a lot of fear there. And then there's also experience that we have, you know, whether somebody broke into our car or whether we've seen a news report that, right. you know, said somebody shot somebody because of drugs. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of attach that to, to everyone. But, you know, I, I'm not always the the best poster child for for um, reducing stigma when I tell my own story because I tend to you know I was there I tend to use language that I understand but when I go out in the public for Foundation for Recovery I try and maintain that person centered approach uh, look at them as a person again getting back to my own experience. When I began to feel like a person, I began to treat other people like persons. Yeah. It just made it humanize me again. And everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you have? I feel like your life should uh, be played by like a Ryan Gosling movie. Rocket scientist. Mm-hmm. I get Addicted more, to heroin. I get more of a Jeff Goldblum feel. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> your personal look, the yes. The character from Jurassic Park, actually. But... Now, he's new Jeff Goldblum. Rockets. Oh, dino- like rockets are the new dinosaur? Mm-hmm. What is that? It's what do you just mean? Hashtag is right. new. It's a- <laughs> like baby <laughs> shark? You guys don't got kids? You know, um, over there. <laughs> she knows. Right. <laughs> we drew the line on the table. Um, fired. <laughs> he fires me every episode. <laughs> So how often do you speak for, uh, like go out and speak for the foundation? Well, and do they know you're doing this podcast? Uh, no, (laughs) (laughs) they do do now. Yeah. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. (laughs) What is like an average? So I, I spoke at a, so there was a, it's called fifth Friday. It's a, uh, like a CEU 
continuing education group for medical professionals mm -hmm. that I went out and spoke on a panel last Friday. What do one of those talks or discussions or speeches sound like? Th this you usually one, touch on. Um, on what foundation does as far as the peer recovery services, um, advocacy, uh, and then just by breakdown kind of the services that we do, the specific services. Which are like um, helping you find jobs, yeah. uh, motivational interviewing, um, connecting them with services, with, uh, with therapists, with treatment providers, just more kind of the central hub, hub mm -hmm. in the wheel and spoke of a recovery oriented system of care. And Do then I, I'm going to, uh, going to speak on recovery language tomorrow mm. at, uh, the opening of, uh, uh, an IOP in, who? Oh, you're talking about Endure? Endure, yeah. I have... Their episode came out today. Yeah. I saw her. I saw Brittany on there. I have a question about recovery language. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you said that. Um, I think that you were in the meeting with Caitlin and I, and it still upsets me to this day, but... <laughs> I know um, There was a man that spoke that was a senator, and he, he had, like, bragged about his experience with... Um, getting his addiction medicine waiver and was talking about going to Ventura and the fires and blah, 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 blah. I don't care. And he said the word druggy by maybe three times. Mm -hmm. Do you, is that something that stands out to you? As much it, as it does. It does. I don't. Uh, and uh, again, I just think like somebody in like in a position of power like that has no business treating addiction. No. And, and, Again, I don't. Have to agree with me. No, yeah. I, it it bothers me for when somebody speaks publicly like that. You right. know, if, when I go to a twelve step meeting, I say, mm -hmm. uh, "My name's Will, and I'm a drug addict." Right. Um, but that's in a closed setting. There's an in group thing. And right? I, I, yeah, and, and I, because when I go to when I speak in public, I say, "My name's Will, and I'm a person in long term recovery." Mm -hmm. And I try not, I mean, it feels rehearsed again, changing, you know, it doesn't feel, it didn't feel genuine. genuine for me to say that. Now it does because that's, you know, that's really what I am. Mm -hmm. um, can I identify myself as a drug addict? Yes. But is it really the most positive thing I can say about yeah. myself? You know, I, again, to go back to Wayne Dyer, my I statements are my connection to divinity. Mm -hmm. I am. Wait, say that statement again. So my I statements, my I am. Mm -hmm. So if you, in the Bible. Yeah. And there's a couple saying. other texts. It's God identifies himself as I am that I yeah. am. So when we use I am statements, it was Wayne Dyer's. Uh, idea that we are either um, solidifying or negating our connection to divinity. And so if I say I am a drug addict, I am negating it. If I say I am in recovery, I am trying, I am yeah. bettering mm -hmm. myself. Those Flipping are, the switch. Yeah. And again, it's just it's You just it's said that semantics. so quick. I thought mm -hmm. people should hear that. It's semantics, but... Is it really? I mean, it, it is just words, but, mm -hmm. but our, yeah, the words, that we, the, the, the things we say about ourselves really do matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I agree. The things that we, even if we are in 
the in crowd and Mm -hmm. well i can say i'm a drug addict because i i can say druggies because Mm -hmm. i am is it's I know where you're going. Foolish. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's damaging. Mm-hmm. It really is. It doesn't, it, it might ingratiate you with a certain segment of the population, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you're just perpetuating stereotypes. And I no, think it makes you look stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, I, I feel like when things like that come out, it's a core part of their belief system too. And that's how it slips out because mm-hmm. they believe it to be true. And without any correction or anything, it's, um, that's what I have a really hard time with. And if that's the belief system that you have, that's where the stigma comes in and then the discrimination and those behaviors. And I don't, I don't like it. And I don't either. And it, and it does, the change in language for me was one of the hardest things because I was so used to that. Mm -hmm. But even if it feels rehearsed at times, even if it doesn't feel genuine, it means that I'm making, you know, an effort to change that. That's what, you know, one of the things that, um, a therapist taught me about language, um, in treatment, mm-hmm. um, guys coming off the street will drop a lot of F-bombs. They'll, you know, F this, F that. And, and he, you know, he would ask, well, why would you, why do you use that? Or why wouldn't you want to use that? And they said, Oh, like it's a, it's a, a self-respect thing. He says, well, that's part of it, but it's more that you, if you don't use those, if you use those, you're making a choice. If you don't use those, if you make the effort to not use those, you're making a choice. You're it's showing like a that sacrifice. you can change. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cause I, I've done a, I don't know if you've heard of the Jordan Peterson. He's a kind of, kind of motivational speaker. Okay. Yeah. Kind of more, uh, a therapist but um he's be- a lot of things on language as well mm-hmm. there's this whole thing about sacrifice and, and and logical sacrifice is about you know making the correct decisions in the correct moment uh not only because they're logical and correct but because you're again making that effort and that's it's, it's also like an energy sacrifice at the same time which I, I well, and we habituate ourselves to certain things so much so that they almost become autonomic mm-hmm. and language is is right. one of them i mean our you know character defects are, are again for me my character defects underlie my substance use mm-hmm. you know i learned to lie when i was you know a baby if i cried and my mom came in, then I could sit there and go, (laughs) and I would get a reaction. So it became almost autonomic. And that's the same way, you know, language, we begin learning it young. And so it does take an effort to correct it. And when you change your language, you have to be mindful because you're, and then you're stimulating new neural pathways, Mm -hmm. which promote healing and reduce memory loss. We all have the the capacity. Mm-hmm. We all should take the opportunity to utilize our capacity to change mm-hmm. and grow. If we're not right. seeking change, I mean, it's going to happen. If we're not seeking growth, then stagnation is the same for me mm-hmm. as going backward. Yeah. And on that, I think we're going to end it. Will, yeah. do you want to promote the foundation and tell all the websites? and Foundation for Recovery at... 
forrecovery.org. That's F-O-R recovery.org. We are on Facebook and Instagram as well. It's um, at Foundation for Recovery and at For Recovery. What's your personal Instagram so people can see the carrots? My personal Instagram is at Skippy Latroy. Hey yo. Uh-huh. Word. Word. Um, Desk warrior. Exactly. Trending soon. Uh, I, I'm hoping. I'm made. hoping that my plus sound hound and the uh, what's the desk warrior. And then you can also search um, hashtag Biggie Smalls and plus size cats of Instagram to find my, <laughs> to find my cat Biggie Smalls. Really? I love we that's love happening. Cats that's too. going down soon. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is. Yeah. Um, December fifteenth. At Foundation for Recovery, 4800 Alpine Place, we have our holiday dinner, 5 to 6.30 Uh um, in Suite 3, open to all. Lovely. Yeah. That's Friday night. That's Saturday, next Saturday. Saturday. That's the day I got to pay my insurance. Oh, it's the 17th? Anyway. Yeah, I I hope it's a Saturday. I'm pretty sure it's a Saturday. I believe you. I'm losing my mind. Any last words? Um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for I coming. No, this is probably one of the mm-hmm. funnest interviews I've done. Yeah, this is lovely. I'm well, Chris West. Well, do you want to sign us out? <laughs> no. Just kidding. Was... Sorry, Chris. <laughs> Guests can't sign. We can do whatever we want. You no longer get to do the intro. I was already fired. You just let me stay <laughs> on. He didn't unplug my mic. Well, I would sign out with this is Terry Gross. From yeah. <laughs> NPR. Thanks for joining us. He really was practicing <laughs> he that was. voice. <laughs> I'm going to try to do it like Terry Gross. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Recover Everything Podcast. I'm Chris West. My co-host today was Dr. Sarah Shonian. Thank you. Good night, everybody. <laughs> to subscribe to us on all the major streaming platforms Uh, follow us on twitter instagram facebook all that goodness and send us a story reach out to us talk to us we really would like some feedback and just to kind of meet and talk to our new audience